Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Kerry Dioulis is a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon who has a special interest in the role of nutrition, sleep, meditation, exercise, and stress management in orthopedic surgery and chronic pain. Carrie herself has an incredible weight loss story, losing over 90 pounds. She's also a thriving type 1 diabetic and is a big proponent, as am I, of a plant-based keto approach. She's also part of a new startup called Keto, and today we're going to talk about everything from plant-based keto to weight loss to, quite frankly, an approach that's very appropriate for January 2020 when it comes to all things wellness and weight management. Carrie, welcome. So great to see you. Great to see you too, Jason. So let's start with your health journey. There is an incredible before and after photo, which we can't really show because people are listening. It's a podcast, but just walk us through that photo and, and your personal health journey. I mean, it's it's a long one. Um, the Cliff Notes version, I w- we struggled with weight. I mean, I went sort of plant-based when I was 12 because I had started to put on some weight like happens hormonally with a lot of girls. Um, and then in college, I gained 100 pounds. And that's sort of a complicated story, you know, the origins of that. But I started medical school 100 pounds heavier than I am right now. Wow. And, and how know, tall are you? Five foot four, I say so on my driver's no, license. No, but 100, like 100 pounds is 100 pounds. But at five foot four versus I'm six foot seven, it's even more. It was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot. I'm a small framed person and... It was a lot. Um, and so then after that, I, you know, first year of medical school decided I need to do something about this. And I did it in the traditional ways, which was counting calories and exercising a lot um, to the extent that I was running marathons. And I actually was on the national team for duathlon and went to Worlds. Um, and did pretty well there my last year of medical school and then competed in, you know, long distance cycling and, and long distance endurance sports in my 20s. And I ended up, you know, during that time, it was sort of a balance of exercise and calories and what is that doing. And I injured my knee and had a sort of unusual quad tendon injury. And that sort of at least temporarily ended my sort of career. I was a pathology resident at the time um, and thought that, you know, the science of medicine was what fascinated me. Um, After that injury, I realized if I wasn't, you know, working out with the endurance community 20 hours a week, that I really, within healthcare and within my own profession, I loved the science of medicine, but I really missed the patient connection. And orthopedics was something that I was very interested in from the standpoint of, I like to work with my hands. I was, you know, an athlete before I had gained the weight and then became an athlete again, as I was sort of, you know, reinventing myself. And so that, I made the switch to orthopedic surgery at that point. And throughout most of that, I was plant-based. 
and I started to struggle again as I got into my 30s. I switched to orthopedic surgery, which was sort of an unusual thing. Like when I was interviewing, not only were there very few women who did orthopedics, but I came to it from pathology. So, you know, the discussions were, why do you want to <laughs> switch from orthopedics from pathology to orthopedics? And it was the best decision that I ever made. And I don't regret any of the time that I spent in pathology because it really gave me a good understanding of the pathophysiology of disease. It was like, you know, medical school, like all over again with deep intensity and got to do some fun research and things like that. And struggled, you know, in residency, um, gained some weight prior to, I met my husband and prior to that, um, you know, with the stress of residency and lack of sleep and all of those things was putting weight on. Weight is a real, you know, struggle for me, even to this day. I mean, it's, it's not something that just comes easily, although I've found the ways to keep it easy most recently, and we can talk about that. Um, but I did sort of a low carb at that point. It was sort of South Beach before my husband and I got married, and it was much more meat heavy than I was comfortable with, but I got the results that I wanted. And for me, plant-based, I just don't really like meat if I want to eat it. Like, it's not a religion. It's not, you know, I think I'm very interested in, you know, regenerative farming practices and not monocrops and things like that. So all of those things are important. But really, it was about how do I work with what, you know, genetics I've been given and what life situations that have impacted me and how do I optimize my health with those things. And so, you know, I, we ended up having my husband and I had two kids and I gained weight with each of those and sort of struggled to lose the weight after that and did it in varying ways, mostly was plant-based. And the thing that I found was that the low-fat you know, plant-based, I struggled. I started gaining weight. I really couldn't keep on top of it. I was hungry all the time. I was having problems with my hair and my skin and, you know, and there were a lot of factors that were in there. And I sort of reached out to the gurus that were, you know, in that. And I have a biochemistry degree and, you know, understand all of these things. And, you know, the, the inference was that I was doing it wrong. I'm like, well, how am I doing? I'm eating food and I'm trying to eat when I'm hungry. I'm hungry all the time and I don't feel great. And, um, you know, have did some things with playing with different juices. I mean, if there is a diet out there, I have done it and truly done it and experimented with it. And if that's, you know, I don't think there's one true, if there's anything that I come away from this, I don't think there's one true human diet. I think there's a lot of variations and a lot of people respond in different ways mm -hmm. to different things. Um, and then I was out, I was on staff at the Cleveland Clinic as an orthopedic spine surgeon and was speaking on a national level about how do we optimize patients, orthopedic patients' metabolic health so that we can improve their musculoskeletal health, but also, you know, things that pay the bills, which is optimizing their surgical outcomes. How do we get better surgical outcomes by working with people on their metabolic health? And I went for an executive physical and was expecting everything to be good. And they said, well, your A1C, which is a measure of your overall blood sugars, is elevated. I was like, how is that even possible? Like, well, that's not a thing. Let's right. re recheck that. And it was real. 
Um, and I had some things that I could, you know, fix in my diet. And I went really clean plant. I sort of called it a pescatarian paleo, um, except I did have some, you know, beans in that. And I bought a blood sugar meter and I started tracking my blood sugars. And I was in my 30s at this point. And I was tracking my blood sugars and I started to realize, okay, if I eat chickpeas, it spikes my blood sugar for hours afterwards and I don't come down. So I started finding things that, you know, I was eating lower and low carb on my own so that I could keep those blood sugar spikes from happening. And what I ended up, I I ended up almost on essentially zero carb diet at one point where it was, you know, really meat heavy because that's what I thought you had to do. Um, in order to keep my blood sugars under control. And I didn't feel great, and there was a lot sort of in that. And I ended up, I got sick and checked some labs. And as it turned out, it became very clear that I was a type 1 diabetic and not a type 2 diabetic, which is sort of what they thought was happening, which didn't really make sense because I didn't have the family history of it and I didn't have, you know, sort of the physical characteristics that we see. Although there can be people who are thin who have type 2 diabetes, who have strong family history. So, um and went on insulin. And I did the things that they teach you to do when you go on insulin, which is that you have to eat a certain amount of carbohydrates. So when the body produces insulin, it's a magnificent balance and can release very small amounts in very precisely timed ways so that it keeps blood sugars from going too high, keeps blood sugars from going too low. When we inject insulin, the dynamics of it are different. It doesn't go through the liver first, and there's some feedback loops that don't happen. And what I found was if I ate things that had a lot of carbohydrates in it, I was guessing, I was, this should be math. This should be simple. This should be chemistry, which I was good at. And I should be able to just inject the right amount of insulin for an apple and not go too high and not go too low. And I very quickly found that that is incredibly challenging to do. Which is why we accept in type 1 diabetics blood sugars and an A1C of 7, which is relatively high blood sugars, you know, 6.5, depends on your age what the the Mm -hmm. goal is. Because the risks are, we know that if you get too high, there's a lot of long-term negative complications associated with that. Nerve problems, vision problems, amputations, heart disease, I mean, the list is yeah, it's not good. fabulously wonderful. Um, but type 1 diabetics can die suddenly from a low blood sugar. And I've had friends, even physicians, really smart people who have died from sudden low blood sugars. So the safe thing is, and what we've been taught for a long time, is you eat carbs, you accept sort of higher blood sugars, and you, you know, avoid those potentially life-threatening hypoglycemic events. And that just didn't, A, it was hard for me as a, as a you know, busy spine surgeon, it was hard to have my blood sugar fluctuate wildly throughout the days. I mean, I had one day where I was 40 at one point and 400 another, and it, you, it feels awful. And your energy levels are low, and it's just not good. And the thought of sort of running high bothered me because I have amputated far more legs in my life and in my training than I would like to do from diabetes, and I see... Now, every single day in my clinic, all of the negative consequences of, you know, elevated blood sugars and what those things, what can happen to the body. 
So I went back. I mean, it was a matter of weeks where I said, this is just ridiculous. And I went back to eating very low carb. And it was, you know, life-changing at that point to be able to have relatively flat blood sugars and not have to chase it all day and be able to focus on what I really want to do, which is be a spine surgeon and do long spine surgeries and be a mom and a wife and an athlete and all of the things that I want to do that bring me joy in my life. And low carb worked incredibly well for me. And it turns out there's a whole community of people who follow what Dr. Bernstein, who is now, I think he's 84 now, type 1 diabetic endocrinologist, and he wrote a book that's sort of the Bible of those who want to follow low carb. And it's a great place to start. I've evolved a lot from that in my own management and use different technology that's available now um, to manage my blood sugars. But low carb worked really well for me. And then I, I got a bad virus and had some issues with my stomach that happened after I actually went into diabetic ketoacidosis and, you know, got to hang out in the ICU for a little while. And that was sort of fun. And after that, I had to figure out how to get food in for a little while because my stomach wasn't working right. And that's resolved and it's totally fine now. But part of that journey was getting back to being able to get in protein. Protein was the single hardest thing. And animal protein, even in shakes, just was hard for me to do for whatever reason. I don't know that, I mean, we can talk Mm -hmm. about the different amino acid profiles and gastric emptying and things like that. The science of it doesn't matter much. I was just trying to figure out how to get in food. And at one point I thought, why am I fighting this so much? I was able to eat more, but I still struggled with, with eating animal protein, like, you know, a piece of chicken or steak or salmon. And I thought, why am I fighting this so much? I've been plant-based the vast majority of my life overall. Why don't I just accept this and play with it? And that's been several years now where I'm now, you know, have been plant-based, low-carb. And a lot of the markers, things like that around inflammation, like high-sensitivity CRP is an inflammatory marker. And I had always struggled with that being higher than I wanted it to be. And I would Mm -hmm. work with all these people and we would bring it down and I was cheering for them. And I was like, why can't I get mine down to where theirs is? And overnight it, it improved to where it's 0.2, which is, you know, remarkably low. Yeah. Um, I could never get it below 1.5, but it hovered around three. And so that was, I said, okay, well, I've got these markers. My lipid profile improved significantly. And so I said, all right, I'm just going to, you know, do this and I'll do it for as long as makes sense. And, you know, still at this point, it makes sense. Although, like I say, in four minutes, I mean, we could go out to lunch and I could say, you know what, I feel like having a piece of salmon today and I'm going to do that. Or if I have labs, you know, there's all of these thoughts of, you know, are you able to get enough nutrients and things like that? And I test a lot of that stuff because I can and because I'm interested. Um, but, you know, I have an incredibly busy life. I I don't even know. I've added up like I have 14 jobs now. That mm-hmm. doesn't include being a mom and a wife. And, you know, I run a lot. I just did a 50K and did it with – I ate one pack of peanut butter the entire time. And I had black coffee before. And so the journey of it for me is, I think for a lot of people, 
if we're looking at blood sugar, for me, it's almost a no-brainer that keeping carbohydrates low makes it much easier. And there's, you know, fiber that are carbohydrates that I don't need to give insulin for. Um, but the journey varies for different people, and it doesn't look one particular way for people, but there are certainly some lessons that can, we can learn sure. if we pay attention to where people struggle. So you've done something remarkable. And so I don't want to just gloss over the fact that you've lost over 100 pounds and have kept it off. What, do, what advice do you have for people who struggle with weight and what do you think you've done that's worked? Because that, that is remarkable. I don't want to. like that, that's, that's remarkable. You know, weight, I mean, to this day, weight is like always an issue for me up and down. I mean, I can gain running a lot of miles and stress and things. It's losing weight was probably easier than keeping it off. And now that I'm, you know, in my late 40s, the challenges, you know, sort of seem to magnify themselves. And stress is a huge role. I think listening to your body and dialing in what works for you. If it's not working for you, you're not, first of all, it's not, I see this with patients all the time. And I know the shame that you feel when you're overweight like that. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people gain weight. And there's a lot of, you know, psychology around all of that. And I think that those are things that shouldn't be dismissed. I mean, I know that there was stuff that I had to work on, and that made an impact on you know, me, I would emotionally eat at times, but it was more than that. It was stress and things like that. Um, I think weighing yourself is is a double-edged sword. I don't do it every day. I do it often, though, because you want to see where you're trending. And, I mean, there are times, like, I, you know, with this recent race that I just did, I – wanted to make sure that I was able to successfully do it. So I gave myself a little more latitude on what happened with the scale. And I now know how I can manipulate my own physiology. So I can do some fasting at times and I can count calories at times and I can do different things. Calories still matter. I mean, I think even with low carb, like God bless the people that say you can eat 4,000 calories of butter and not gain weight. If you eat a jar of almond butter, it's, it's a lot. Peanut butter is by far my nemesis. Like we have a love-hate relationship because I can eat half a jar of peanut butter and not even think about it and add chocolate to it all the better, right? I'm with you. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Let's go. What are Let's we doing go. the what podcast do do? Yeah. for? Why are we doing this? Let's go eat peanut butter. And, you know, I mean, so those things are, I think having markers that you can measure are helpful I think acknowledging when you struggle and not feeling like it's a personal failing is important. I think for too long, we've given people, like we thought it was a math problem. And we told people just eat less and move more. And here we are, (laughs) right? And I can tell you that for me, oftentimes the more I move, it slows down my metabolism to a certain extent. Like it becomes paradoxical and I'll start to need to eat fewer calories. As I get into that overtraining, and if you don't sleep well, your 
my insulin requirement will go up if I don't sleep independent of what I'm eating. And so dialing in all of those things, sleep and stress, and figuring out what works best with your body, how you feel the best. Some people do amazingly well on a low-fat plant-based diet. Some people, I mean, there are people out there who do great on a carnivore diet. I can't even fathom a carnivore diet because I don't like meat that much. I worry about, you know, groups who get really too pigeonholed. And I mean, some people would say that plant-based low carb is pigeonholed, but the reality of it is I eat a ton of amazing food and it doesn't feel restrictive. And the thing that's nice about it for me is as a type one diabetic, I don't have to focus every minute of the day on how many carbs are in this and am I chasing it around and it's a whole lot easier. And so I think if there's one message for people, I really think we need to take the moral judgment out of how people feel about their weight and their bodies Mm -hmm. and partner with people. And when people are struggling, really help them figure out how they can be successful. And the easiest for me with my patients, I mean, I do this every day in my office, the low carb diet has some benefits from a medical standpoint that I utilize, but it's one of the single easiest ways for me to get someone to see and feel success. And once you see and feel success, it is a strong motivator to continue. So, you know, I'll put a lot of patients on the diet before surgery and they will fight me. But I, you know, there's some benefits and some reasons that we do that. And then about 80% of them will stay on it afterwards on their own because they feel so good and they've gotten off of medications and their energy levels are better. And some of it's, I've, you know, they've recovered from surgery and what I was fixing got better too. So it's not just, you know, the dietary thing. So you mentioned stress and sleep. What, what's your opinion on the role of those two beasts with regards to weight management? So I think diet and food matter a lot. I think stress and sleep matter a lot. Um, and as a society, we here's, so it's a funny thing. I mean, not to get too philosophical here when it comes to stress, stress is not a bad thing. I think this is part of the problem is I think our reaction to stress potentially has changed, um, in, in good ways and in bad ways. Um, you know, if you look at pictures of people 150 years ago, we didn't have the obesity epidemic that we do. But it's not like there was no stress in those people's <laughs> lives, right? Like sleep was probably better because we didn't have all the electronic devices and, you know, there weren't TVs or things that, you know, would keep us awake and all of the, you know, blue light going into our eyes. Stress, and this has been my own journey, and it's one that I'm still embracing the actual journey of is how do we take those things that are hard and grow from them and I think sometimes when we try to de-stress our life and we try to live in this blissful state it actually increases our overall stress and anxiety because it's artificial the thing that I've spent the most time learning in this past year on my own personal journey 
is that embracing whatever that experience is, good, bad, or other, for what it is, is okay. And then moving beyond it and growing from it is a fascinating process and something that I'm still sure. learning and working on, and that's probably a whole separate are. discussion. We all are. Yeah. So I'm also curious, you mentioned there was your, your CRP was elevated. Uh-huh. Did you ever figure out what was the one? And you were pretty healthy. Like, what was the thing you did that specifically that brought Switching it down? to plant-based was really? the... So it was just the meat that was doing that I, for you? Maybe it was, you know, I didn't really do dairy. I was curious, like, was it I, peanuts or was it something that, like, one of those... Was it more fiber in my diet? Was it that I got rid of the meat? Was it... I, I don't know know that I know the answer. I could go back now and add meat. Like I could do the experiment and add it back. Um, Plant-based, low-carb. Like this is one of the things that low-carb, one of the recent JAMA articles was that the criticism of low-carb and keto was that it's very low in fiber. And the reality is I probably get 75 to 100 grams of fiber in a day. And I have, you know... 25 to 30 net carbs or I sort of call them impact carbs because those are the carbs that I need to give insulin for so I can have a ton of fiber in it and I you know that can be helpful from an inflammatory standpoint um I was keto so you know there's benefits there's metabolic there's there's inflammatory pathways in the body that are that beta hydroxybutyrate which is one of the ketones impacts in a positive way so there's some science behind why the ketogenic diet can be anti-inflammatory and I utilize that with my patients I don't know if it was what specific thing it was that made the shift other than that was the only thing that I changed really was that I increased my overall fiber and I cut out all animal products and lots of healthy you know nuts and seeds and olives and avocado and things like that so that what's was, a day in the life i'm curious like how do you eat what's a day in the life of your yep, diet? black coffee for breakfast and that's even if i go if i have <clears throat> surgery all day or if i go for a five-hour run i'll have, just do it on black coffee i mean i will have some electrolytes if i am out running um and then lunch is a you know giant salad with olives and nuts and seeds I'll use hemp seeds the, the when you're on a plant-based diet it's not the fats that are necessarily different because there are plenty of healthy plant-based fats um, it's the sources of protein so I'll use lupini beans which is an Italian bean that has zero net carbs and I've run these experiments where I've been on a plane where I can't it's not like I'm exercising in a way and I ate a packet of the lupini beans in it <laughs> my blood sugar I give insulin for protein which is something that the traditional diabetes world doesn't you know teach and I only had to give insulin for the amount of protein that was in the the lupini beans Um, so I'll put lupini beans on it or I'll use hemp seeds or you know black soybeans or tofu um, lots of olive oil balsamic vinegar white vinegar some sort of vinegar um, salt I mean that's one of the things I you know with the amount that I exercise and with the low carb diet, I salt everything. Um, and then whatever other vegetables we have, broccoli, asparagus, Brussels sprouts. So I make this giant salad and take that. Or sometimes I just don't eat. If I do surgery, I just don't eat lunch. And then I'll come home and I'll eat dinner. 
Um, and dinner is similar. So usually a giant salad, roasted vegetables. You know, I like to play with different recipes. It depends on how busy I am. And I try and post things on Instagram that I'm playing with and things like that because it's fun. Sometimes I'm like my go-to is roasted broccoli and Brussels sprouts with, you know, olive oil, mm. avocado. I have at least one avocado. Like if we ever get into a problem where, you know, we cannot get avocados, I'm in big trouble. I'm with you. Yeah. So, you know, and then I'll have, I love dark chocolate. So Lily's is a company that makes a dark sure. chocolate that doesn't have. I love that. Yeah. So I'll have that pretty much every evening and I'll snack on macadamia nuts and olives and things like pistachios. that. Pistachios. My, my favorite love. nut. My favorite nut. Yeah. Love pistachios. I mean, I have a big Brussels sprout kale salad that I put pistachios on and so, just love it. So you're an orthopedic spine surgeon, yet here we are talking about nutrition. And if I were to venture a guess and we were to survey a lot of orthopedic spine surgeons and I'd say, we want to have you on the podcast. We're going to spend a lot of time speaking about food and nutrition. I'd get a lot of empty, right? <laughs> a lot of, you know, no responses or questions why. So let's talk about that. So interest is growing. I mean, I can tell you that the number of surgical conferences that, you know, I've been speaking at over the past few years has increased substantially. And um, we're realizing more and more. I mean, some of it has to do with the reimbursement model. So people are paying more attention because when patients have poor surgical outcomes, it's negatively impacting reimbursement. So let's be real. <laughs> there's some like, money there. There's money there, right? <laughs> but the reality is, is, you know, more and more doctors are interested in their own health and we're having patients, you know, when a patient has modifiable risk factors. So in, in spine, we've known for a long time that smokers don't heal as well. And that's become one of the things that we get people off of all sources of nicotine prior to doing elective spine surgery. And so that's a modifiable risk factor. For a long time, it was thought that weight and diabetes were not modifiable risk factors. But the reality is you've you know, got companies. Weight makes sense. Weight, it's like it weighs on the spot, like that, that one. Yeah, so there's some biomechanics to the weight itself. Yes. Um, but there's also inflammatory properties. So there's more and more research now that how our metabolism impacts the spine and the other joints. So advanced glycation end products, which are these sticky molecules, that's why we can measure an A1C. So when blood sugars are very elevated, those sticky molecules get stuck to the discs and around the spine and around the nerves. And that's why people get diabetic neuropathies or nerve problems Oof. from that. Painful. Yeah, right. And, but it also can lead to spine degeneration and other s syndromes like frozen shoulder or iliotibial band syndrome, which is the band that runs along the length of the leg. And so we'll see things that mimic themselves as nerve problems that are actually coming from blood sugars being out of control. And if you do a spine surgery on that person, they're not going to get better. But if, you know, we're listening to a patient when, when I see somebody and they come in the office and, you know, their symptoms don't quite fit, their MRI doesn't quite fit, and they're, they have, you know, signs that they have problems with their metabolic syndrome, then by modifying those things, people get better. And so weight reduction, you know, we use BMI. It's sort of a kludgy mm -hmm. marker and there's a lot of things in it. But when a BMI is above a certain level for each different surgery, 
we know that the risks of complications goes up dramatically. And some patients need help and need bariatric surgery in order to improve upon that. But for a lot of people, if we partner with them rather than judge them, I mean, here's the thing that I've never met somebody who's overweight that doesn't know that they're overweight. And if a doctor says, you're too fat for surgery, come back to me when you've lost. And that sounds really cruel, but there are a lot of times that that happens. I mean, this week that will happen (laughs) all across the country. And so I think it's better to say, okay, and because of my own journey, I'm able to partner with patients on it. And sometimes I show them a picture and I say, I understand. And so that's been the thing that's been most striking to me is being able to take people who would previously not be good surgical candidates and improve dramatically their likelihood of having a good surgical outcome based on improving those modifiable risk factors. Taking someone's A1C from nine down to six within a matter of a few weeks um, is possible. So you've decreased their likelihood of having these really high blood sugars. Bacteria need sugar to grow. And if blood sugars are elevated, we know that diabetics have a really high risk of having post-surgical infections. And so this has been the thing that's been you know, growing within the surgical communities is understanding how it is. It's not that we didn't understand that it happens. It's that surgeons felt sort of held hostage to that, to where they couldn't, that it wasn't, it was sort of hopeless to be able to improve that in patients and we just had to accept these risks. And so that's the thing that has been exciting for me is to get to you know work with to talk about this and see hospital systems implement these programs where people you know are finding that it's helpful with patients that they're working with well in some ways is it recognizing the role that nutrition plays in inflammation and inflammation's role in recovery or lack of recovery? Yes, and. I mean, I think it's comp- it's it's more complicated beyond just inflammation. You know, we're, particularly with the low-carb diet, there's some data on it stabilizing nerves and using it in stroke patients and spinal mm-hmm. cord injuries and things like that. And some of that's inflammation and some of it's, you know, some other, we don't need to get into the nitty-gritty of the science of it, but there's some pathways that are modified through diet. Um, some of it has to do with weight, but inflammation is, you know, certainly a factor. Inflammation after surgery, we need some inflammation. Like, if life has taught me anything, there is nothing that is all good or all bad. I mean, maybe politically, that's a whole separate discussion. But, you know, there's the body, you need to have the right amount of it. There's sort of pun fully intended, the sure. sweet spot for all of these things. And so we want some inflammation after surgery in order to get adequate healing, but we don't want too much inflammation. And so it's balancing that out. And, and you know, I have patients that I put on the diet pre-surgery who structurally have every reason to need a spine surgery. And they cancel surgery because they got better just from the dietary changes. And at first I thought, well, this is coincidence. This is just somebody who got better on their own. But it's been, ha- you know, it happens repeatedly and it right. seems like the diet is the single biggest thing where, 
you know, I've had patients where they have so little room for their nerves. I'm not sure how they walk, let alone, you know, pee. And I have a woman, she has zero pain and she does Zumba five times a week. And that's, you know, any spine surgeon looking at her spine MRI would say, what are you doing Tuesday? So (laughs) if I'm say relatively healthy, why should I be concerned about inflammation and what are some what are some of the signs I you know look out for if I am inflamed and what are things I could generally do that are helpful and understanding that th- there's some like general degree which is healthy yeah I mean I think we are understanding more and more how inflammation plays a role in aging and degeneration and so why do you care is how long do you want to live feeling good um, you know, obviously if you lower your inflammation, it's not going to help you live longer if you get hit by a bus. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, my goal, and I have sort of a lot of strikes against me from, you know, the health cards that I've been dealt is to be as active as possible for as long as possible. And so I think the, you know, the goals of reducing things that cause inflammation and excess weight alone, you know, there are some, some data to support the fact that just being obese is an inflammatory state. And so optimizing your weight, exercising, maintaining muscle strength and muscle mass. I mean, sarcopenia of aging, which is a a term that sounds much more sciencey than it needs to be is just that we lose muscle over time and i actually sure. see it on people's mris i see muscle replaced with fat and that leads to injury whereas before you wouldn't have had that so you know you want to maintain your muscle mass and your muscle strength and you know perhaps at this point i'm exercising enough that i'm increasing my inflammation i probably should check i mean i think that's <laughs> it really is a valid thing where you know there is a truly good state and there's some data that supports so I'm sort of you know going against what I'm preaching by probably I increased inflammation beyond what it should have been by some of the things that I do athletically but it brings me joy so I'm okay with that and you know that's another one of the sort of things that I'm learning over time is sometimes you just need to have joy (laughs) so it's 2020 yeah yeah a lot of people still struggle with blood sugar and we still have a diabetes issue epidemic yeah <laughs> issues is yeah. not strong enough for going to bankrupt our country yeah so like well, let's talk world. about let's talk about both like you know relatively healthy people again i think some people like struggle with blood sugar and wrapping their head around it what to do and how to optimize so talk about those people and then the more serious side of diabetes so we should probably say first there's two well there's two main types of diabetes and then there's some other smaller ones so there's type 1 diabetes which is an autoimmune disease and we're seeing this massive increase across all age groups originally people thought type 1 diabetes was just in kids but it you know can be in adults as well in fact 30 percent of people who are diagnosed type 1 diabetics um, with type 1 diabetes are not children Um, type 2 diabetes is you know, the oversimplification of it is where the metabolism is broken and not functioning optimally. And there's a spectrum, you know, it doesn't, it's not like you 
wake up one day and you weren't type 2 diabetic yesterday and now you are. You know, how we got here, I think there's a lot of, you know, from a dietary standpoint, there is a huge change from how we ate for thousands of years. And it's not like we were living to 160 <laughs> a thousand years ago. And, you know, now we're, you know, living to 75. Although, you know, the the this is the first year again. It's the expected age keeps has taken a turn in the wrong direction so it was increasing for a long time and there's a lot of factors around that um but we're seeing the overall life expectancy start to decrease in the united states um and we see this a lot i mean the number of children who are going to be diagnosed now and in the future with type 2 diabetes is you know brings pain to my heart because you know, it's such a problem. And those kids, it is far easier, I think, to work on prevention than it is once you've gotten into where your metabolism is broken. I think that's part of why it's so hard to lose weight and keep, once you've lost it, to keep it off. And mm-hmm. there's some studies that, that support that. Um, and so the epidemic of obesity in kids is creating problems for you know, a lifetime from now. Sure. So, you know, a lot of it, our lives have gotten really busy. We don't focus on family meals. We eat on the fly. We eat a lot of processed food. You know, there was a study that I just saw recently that showed that a highly processed plant-based diet increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, and but a whole food one decreases it. So, you know, we need to find better tools in the low carb diet. I mean, the data for a long time, it was just lose weight and or take medications. And there is mounting data that a very low carbohydrate diet can be powerful for patients who, you know, have metabolic issues and have blood sugar problems. I don't, you know, I think the goal is really metabolic flexibility. Like my kids are not on a low carb diet. My kids are active and eat a predominantly whole foods like we try and minimize the amount of processed foods that are in our our house and teach them you know food balance and you know try and keep out all of the snacks but it is hard because they go to their friends and then they eat you know chips and cookies and crackers and they get a taste of that and they're like mom i don't want this like uber healthy thing that you (laughs) want me to eat i want to eat that stuff and i will watch them eat more of that stuff than they would what i feed them with you know whole ingredients and i think that that's part of where you know we get into trouble it's and it can be the treats it doesn't matter it can be keto treats too like i can be totally full and if there is keto chocolate cake around, I am having some. <laughs> so I think the hyper palatableness, not necessarily sure. the processedness, is I think it's confounding. So do you have any general advice for just someone who's you know pretty healthy but just balancing blood sugar in the afternoon and just like some best practices and people struggle with that? From a blood sugar standpoint, the carbs that you eat are the thing that matters, and I yeah. think that we need to be. You know, it, dep- it depends where on the spectrum you are. Some people will have problems with, you know, 
even the carbs from something that like a whole food, like a sweet potato. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas other people do just fine with it. Some people have problems with chickpeas, whereas other people do just fine with it. And I think we're learning how the gut microbiome plays a role in that as well. But in general, if you're having blood sugar issues and you're having weight issues, the low, what's nice about the low carb diet is you get things that you can measure in addition to just, you know, weight. And, you know, I can check my ketone levels with, um, a finger stick. I can watch my blood sugars on, I wear a continuous glucose monitor so I can see what goes on with my blood sugars all day. And, you know, for somebody who just wants to lose 10 pounds, I think the advice is different than a type two diabetic who's on four different medications and wanting to really reverse out of that. That's where continuous glucose monitors, I think, are the most impactful because when you can see what happens to your blood sugars, it's really powerful. Hmm. Um, you know, for this person who is metabolically healthy and they just want to stay healthy, it's eat whole real foods. Yep. And, you know, how much animal protein is in there, I think is individual. And there's a lot of factors that go into that, but whole real foods and eat when you're hungry and not eat for the other psychological reasons you know, and move every day and make sure that you're lifting things so that you're maintaining. And it does, it can be body weight exercise. I mean, I think Pilates and yoga and body weight exercise are great. You don't need to go to the gym. You don't need to have special workout clothes. You can do it in 15 minutes getting out of bed in the morning to maintain muscle strength. So something you mentioned earlier is intermittent fasting. Different for men and women. I, a lot of things are different for me. I know. I know. <laughs> like, that's Obviously, I that's an understatement. That. Understatement. Right, understatement. Because, but but know, they are they are different. It is because women, you know, our hormone levels can be impacted. You know, we have estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, all three, and those can be thrown off. I do well with, you know, eating like I don't eat until later in the day, and I do well with that. I've never run into a problem. There are other women who are, you know tend to be super lean, although not necessarily, who have more struggles with that. People with thyroid problems can have more struggles with intermittent fasting, and they actually do better to eat smaller amounts throughout the day. And this is where I go to, there's not one right answer. I can go, you know, five days and do a water fast, which I certainly don't, this is not medical advice for type one diabetics to go out and do that. It's like you and Joe Cross. Yeah, I can be fine with it. Whereas I have other friends who have different, you know, body types who, you know, don't do well with it at all. Can't go a day and a half. Um, And I don't tend to do that as much. Like now I'll do like a really low protein, you know, based on some of Walter Longo's work and things like that and play with that. And what it, it helps me reset things, whether it's physiologic or psychologic, I can't tell you the answer to that, but it you know, helps me sort of reset from a, uh, the standpoint of my hunger cues and how I respond to them mm-hmm. if I take those breaks. And it also means I'm not thinking about food as much and, you know, not overeating at times when I might be, inter- would snack when I wouldn't mm-hmm. otherwise snack. So what's interesting to you right now like where do you think the conversation is going to be in the future say a year from now what are we going to be talking about hopefully so i think 
you know, I mean, I don't know that it'll happen a year from now, but my hope is that we can sort of stop the diet wars <laughs> and that we can learn. For me, the biggest thing is learning from people who struggle and how to help them struggle, how to partner with them, how to give them things that they can use and measure to know that they're, you know, on the right pathway. Um, so my hope is that we're talking more about how do we really work with somebody and stop, like, I, I, the arguments of animal protein versus non-animal protein. I mean, the, you know, there's some environmental things that are, are factors for both of those. Like, we're, you know, growing monocrops is a problem and, you know, what we've done to the soil is a problem. And, but animal, sure. like, it, all of those things are really, really important. I mean, I want my kids' kids to have a planet that they can live on. Um, but I, the thing that I would love to hear from a dietary standpoint is really understanding the different tools that we can use for people to help them achieve success and to be able to partner with them on that. And that would be, you know, from an ideal standpoint where I think I would like to see it go. I think low carb is incredibly helpful for a lot of people. There are some people who, you know, their markers go in the wrong direction with mm -hmm. it. And, you know, that's the thing that I found. I've had some patients who their markers go in the wrong direction and we shift to a plant-based keto. You know, maybe it's got fish in it, maybe it's 100% plant-based and their markers improve. And is it's there's not one right way. It's how do we figure out, okay, you're more likely to be successful on this. And when you're not, here's our next branch point and here's where we go to. Like, mm -hmm. that's where I would ideally love to get to is how do we make it look different for different people based on their goals and their outcomes. And do you have any general advice for someone who's you know, struggling with managing diabetes? Food matters a lot. I mean, you know, Often, I see a lot of patients who are just given more medication. Mm -hmm. Here's the new medicine. And they're told, lose weight. Like, here's your prescription, go lose weight. And they don't know what not to really do. Not really helpful. No, it's not. <laughs> we need to give people tools and things that they can follow. And there are some people that we can just hand a, you know, photocopied diet to, and they do amazingly well. And they find support. You know, having support is also really important. I mean, again, it goes to the whole thing. Like, when, when I give a patient a diet, if their spouse doesn't do it, or worse yet, if their spouse pushes against it, they don't succeed nearly as well as when the family partners with them. So having programs that people can follow that have variation in them and, you know, have things that people can measure are the ways that I think we can improve success, which is why, you know, I've been interested in, in, in working with Ethan on the keto program is because it, it does that. And that was what was so fascinating to me with what they were doing was, okay, there's traditional keto, which is, you know, high in saturated fat. And then here's these more heart healthy options, but then we can be fully plant-based and you can be anywhere on that spectrum. And then you can use the breadth device so that you can figure out 
am I, is this working for me from that, sure. you know, marker? And so those are the things that I'm excited about is how do we build the tools that people can be successful? And that's, you know, it, what I'm having sure. fun getting to do. Let's close with that. I'm very excited about Keto, K-E-Y-T-O, your, your, your new startup with, with Ethan Wise. So let's talk about that. And well, So I came in later doing. into the game. So it was, you know, yeah. Ethan and, and Ray started the company and then they reached out to me when we were talking about the, you know, when I just posted on my Instagram, like some people have said, you know, why as a doctor are you posting recipes? I'm like, because it's fun. I, food <laughs> is fun <laughs> and it's fun to post things that taste good. Um, and, you know, we've had conversations about how is it that we can utilize this and it's fun to create meal plans and it's fun to create recipes that people like and you know i love getting the messages in my instagram feed where you know i tried this recipe and it was great and you know so i get the gratification from you know doing surgery and that but the other side of my life is you know having people be successful like people sharing their successes is wonderful like it's just a great feeling to have people reach out and say this really worked for me and so being able to help them with those tools and so that's part of the thing that we've been doing is how do we create meal plans so that people can benefit from being in ketosis from wherever they're at and what their personal health needs are and their biases are um, from an ethical standpoint or you know other things so so giving people that option and then giving them things that they can measure and providing support and they're just a fun group of people to work with. And so, I love you know, it. it's great. And my patients, the ones that, you know, I've started using it more and more with patients and, you know, people like it. Like I have a lot of patients who are in their seventies and it's super fun to see them pull out the app and, you know, show me what their breath meter has been. And I, <laughs> I, I hedged away from it for a while. I'm like, you know, I, to be clear, I have a lot of patients who still have flip phones, but, you know, I'll ask people, patients, you know, do you want a diet book or do you want to follow an app? And I've been surprised how many people, even in their 70s and some in their 80s, who want to have an app and like the device and like that they get feedback of, is this working? And then they see the, you know, what happens on the scale. And, you know, it's fun and they get rid of medicines and, you know, it's really gratifying to have somebody, whether I do surgery on them or not, you know, there's a lot of hugs that happen in my clinic. And that, you know, again, makes my job really, really fun. So tools like this I'm really excited about. And the foods, I mean, I'm really picky about what I eat. I have learned what foods bother me and what don't. So, you know, I, they probably don't know this. I was really skeptical when they said, well, we want to create some foods. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like there's a lot of <laughs> crap that's out there in the market. But it, it's been the opportunity to you know, have an influence on how foods are created. There are a lot of foods out there that say that they're keto that I eat and it'll spike my blood sugar. I'm like, they just flat out lie on the labels. <laughs> and so it's been fun to be able to play with different ingredients and how do you get the consistency and the taste and, you know, the aftertaste to go away and have it not spike my blood sugar. I'm sort of, you know, after something it's kind that's of important formulated. for you to track it is and you know so it is kind of fun like more samples and you know i'll do it really scientifically where i'll like come into it fasted and then i'll eat the food that we're testing and i'll follow my blood sugar for two or three hours afterwards and you know send them the picture like this one worked that one we need to reformulate 
There's something to be said for real-time feedback. There is something to be said for real-time feedback. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we love it. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.